Bill, there are a few certainties in life. You've heard the joke. There's birth, taxes, and rest assured death. Unlike fables and legends that have lured many to seek the fountain of youth, if one does exist, most certainly it won't be available to us and the common folk. So life is what we make of it. The people we meet, the accomplishments we achieve, more importantly, the worth we have with our fellow man. That's really all there is. You know, we will all die. We will all end up stripped away and become skeletal remains. But what happens during that transition? Sometimes we're given second chances. And death is robbed or at least stalled. Join us tonight, if you dare, as we talk about near-death experiences. In particular, one I will relate about myself. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. So, Eric, you know, I've known you for a long time. Uh, I think we said in the early days of the podcast going almost 20 years at this point. Oh, easily. Yeah. 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 And really, it's just simple twist of fate. We happen to be working in this. We were in the same building for quite a while and didn't even meet each other. Right. And then, you know, things happened. I got from one department, came to your yeah. department. And, and then I would like to say that it was a, a good thing, you know. Likewise. And we, you said this podcast, the origins of this podcast is from us sitting down having these conversations and when we were deciding on topics for for this particular get together you had talked about near-death experience life after death that kind of thing and like you said in the intro you have your own experience i'll say for the listeners i've never heard the story fully related i've heard bits and pieces of it this is something i know that you weren't super comfortable talking about up until recently right and so I would say as your partner in this endeavor, I appreciate the fact that you're willing to share that on the podcast. And we're going to kind of talk about near-death experience. I kind of want to give the background of near-death experiences in general before we get to your particular sure. anecdote so that we're not leaving anything behind and, and that we kind of cover a lot of the different... Of course, mine is one facet of many. So, like I said, I, I appreciate you taking the... feeling comfortable enough to share... With, with myself and the people who listen to us? It was something for many years I, I definitely uh, didn't want to talk about because I didn't want that judgment and ridicule, as the case may be. Now, I can say personally I never have had that experience, so I can't imagine what that's like. Uh, I have read quite a bit about what it's like for other people, so we, like I said, I, I kind of want to give the background, and then as we get to the it's a second half of this particular episode, then we can talk about your particular experience. Sounds good. And then I have some questions I want to ask you based on a questionnaire about near-death experiences. And let me state for the record, I very briefly looked over this questionnaire. <laughs> it's not like something we, we've coerced or planned for, yeah, so this will yeah. be interesting. So near-death experience is basically defined as a profound personal experience associated with death or impending death. Many people experiencing a near-death experience will claim surprisingly similar characteristics 
mostly beginning with an awareness of being dead. Positive experiences may include a detachment from the body or what you'd call an out-of-body experience, feelings of levitation, absolute serenity, security, warmth, feelings of unconditional love and acceptance, an experience like entering a tunnel, a sense of moving up or through a passageway, the presence of a light that may communicate telepathically, possible encounters with beings of light or being reunited with deceased loved ones. Literally, I will say you're checking a lot of the boxes for well, me. And, and again, our questionnaire here is going to cover a lot of that. Literally seeing your life flash before your eyes, the life review. Now, an interesting thing about that is brain scans of dying individuals show that they actually do access in your mind all the memories that you've ever acquired. So you literally, scientifically, in a near-death experience, recall like your entire life. You see your life flash before your eyes. Now, sometimes a near-death experience can be a negative experience. Uh, feelings of anguish and distress, negative experiences usually occur after suicide attempts. And usually these would be inverted versions of a positive. So a detachment from your body, you might feel attached to your body. You want to get back to it. You need to right. be made whole again. Uh, instead of feeling like you're levitating, you might feel like you're falling. Now, you know, obviously, I think most near-death experiences are tailored to what your anticipation is for the afterlife, obviously. So, looking at, from a Christian perspective, you know, if it's a positive experience, you're going to heaven. Negative experience, you're going to hell. Now, some do encounter what is called the void. You find yourself suddenly immersed in a vast emptiness. And this is usually accompanied by a profound sense of terror. Uh, one particular instance that I felt best summarized the way this uh, feeling, the, the, describing the void, is a woman who had, had experienced this near-death experience. She encountered a group of entities, and these entities informed her that her life had never happened and that she was not real. Now, she argued with them. She recalled her life. She said, hey, I did this, I did that, and all this. And they told her, quote, no, none of that had ever been real. Oh, wow. This is all there is. And they left her alone in this seemingly near empty space. Womp womp. So, of course, when she came back to herself, you know, she was, was alive and well, but, you know, kind of had this almost empty, like there's nothing that comes next. So. I'm going to jump in right there. There's a story, and I've relayed this a couple times, but uh, similar. A gentleman by the name of Robert Nobel. Uh, there was a confusion in the newspaper, and this man ended up reading his own obituary and obviously he's alive he, he hasn't died he didn't have a near-death experience but somehow they had got the wrong information maybe another by the same name had passed away and they associated it with him and you know so this man opens up the newspaper and he's literally reading about his accomplishments in life and you know how the graveside services and all this was going to be held the the main block of the obituary was the focus that he created dynamite now this is factual and this is historically correct robert nobel did create yeah. dynamite and it talked about some of the good aspects you know it allowed <laughs> us to build the railroad and, and mines but it also then kind of went into kind of some of the spiraling off and how dynamite could be used as a weapon and and you know it had, it had almost slaves involved with it to, to, to chinese and stuff to do the mines the railroad and he found himself, much like the lady you described, wow, I don't want to be remembered this way. Now, was that the motivation for him to do, like, the Nobel Prize? Thing? Absolutely. So. 
yeah. he came back and like I don't want to be remembered this way. So yes, Robert Nobel is where the Nobel Peace Prize comes from. And he like totally altered his his life thereon, not because of a near death experience, but because reading about <laughs> a mistake about his his life. Actually, as we'll talk about later, most people that experience a near death experience usually have some sort of change in their life profoundly. To continue on talking about near-death experiences, um, well over 9 million people have reported having a near-death experience, and that was according to a 2011 study, so I'm sure those numbers have been inflated now. Uh, Obviously, most near-death experiences result from serious injury to the body or the brain, and 22% of those occur during general anesthesia, which, you know, if you know about anesthesia, technically we don't even know how it works, so we don't know the process we don't know what we're doing to the body we know that certain combinations of drugs essentially shut off the body but how much of the body are we shutting off what are we doing what are we i mean as you as you know anytime you go into surgery you have to sign the waiver saying you understand that a teaser that's what took me out was anesthesia so a 1975 study by psychiatrist raymond moody on about 150 patients who claimed to have had a near-death experience found that typically a near-death experience has nine steps And these will kind of go along with some of the things I said before. But number one, a sudden peace and relief from pain. Number two, perception of a relaxing sound or otherworldly music. Number three, feeling of the spirit rising above the body and remotely reviewing the attempts to revive it. Number four, the spirit leaving the earthly realms and ascending through a tunnel of light. Number five, arriving at a brilliant heavenly place. Number six, being met by people of the light, typically deceased friends and family. Number seven, meeting with a deity perceived as their religion would have perceived them. So again, like I said, they were sort of influenced by your religious beliefs. Number eight, in the presence of that deity, you undergo an instant life review and understand the good and the bad you have done and how it affected others. And then nine, you return to the earthly body in life, either because it's not your time or you are given the choice to return. And Dr. Bruce Grayson studied near-death experiences and found that they lacked a precise diagnosis. You couldn't, I mean, there's no medical cause for this particular experience. Uh, but he did devise a series of, of 16 questions to help define the near-death experience. Each question has three responses. The first was worth two points. The second was worth one. The third is worth zero. And the 16 questions can be universally applied to all near-death experiences with an average score being about 15. And this is the, the questions that I talked about earlier in the question well, we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so we'll, we'll come back to Grayson's studies. Uh, near-death experiencers usually experience changes in personality and outlook on life. Uh, typically, they'll have a, a greater appreciation for life, higher self-esteem, greater compassion for others, less concern for the acquisition of material wealth, uh, a heightened sense of purpose and self-understanding, a desire to learn, elevated spirituality, greater ecological sensitivity and planetary concern, and uh, no longer worried about death in the way they were before, which I've known you for a while. Quite a few of these apply to you. Was, you know, <laughs> my knowing you, so it definitely changed my life. Uh, there's, I no pun intended. It 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 truly did in many many aspects. Quotes from those who have experienced near death experiences: I knew obviously my body still lay in bed, but I could not go back to it anymore. Uh, I perceived and saw everything around me like 360 degrees. And I felt that body was just a coat I had been wearing, and it felt good to be out of it. Now, some believe that uh, near-death experiences do relate to a greater consciousness of mankind, 
I know there's these theories that we all share in a greater, higher, hive mind-like intelligence, a shared intelligence that we all have access to. And some believe that near-death experiences may be indicative of this and not be related to heaven or hell. It's possible for a form of reincarnation through this belief. Now, children do sometimes report past life experiences. About 70% of children report having memories of a previous life. They are often able to describe how they died. And 20% of those children have memories of an in-between time between their death and their next life. Uh, And those people really do tend to fear death less because they know that life continues on. And that may be, again, subject to your own religious beliefs. So, I mean, near-death experiences, obviously, you have some sort of close call. You have this, this, well, I mean, a lot of times you you essentially die. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, stopping of the heart and and and, out and that, and then you have this experience, and then you return, and you know you return with a different sense of purpose or or I'm something. Say, I, I I don't think anybody would return the same. I couldn't imagine how anyone could return to be the same. To some aspect, it's going to be altered. So that is the near death experience in a nutshell. Now, obviously, you can dig into this way way deeper than I have. One of the websites I stumbled upon was a collection of medical journal articles and let's just be honest i'm not i'm not that guy i'm not all the jargon and scientific I'm never terms gonna and, be able to read through that yeah, stuff and understand yeah. what's going on my brother-in-law is a doctor and i only understand about half of what he says when he's talking <laughs> about his job for whatever reason medical professionals feel like they have to use that medical jargon even when they talk to people that aren't trained i think so. it's just because that's their life and they just expect everybody to understand you know because the people they work around yeah. understands that so yeah you, you, my, have your, you know my brother brother brother-in-law you know they should know what i'm talking about you yeah. know kind of thing when you work in a specialized field i guess well my my boys recently started working at the same place i work temporarily just for the summer and they say they have new appreciation for some of the things that i used to talk about because now they understand them I've so I, it's there, the same kind I? of thing yeah the story of my near death experience is something as i kind of alluded to uh, for at least the first five years I never told anyone except for my direct family, and that being like my my wife, of course, and my mom and dad. Um, as you know, I was if you've listened to us for any period of time, I was brought up in a very devout religious household. My father was an elder. I've been a deacon in, in the local Christian church, and there was a part of me that, how do I put it? It, it almost seemed wrong. It almost seemed sinful. Maybe, maybe that's not the right word, but so it, to talk about it, to or? talk that I went through it, um, that shouldn't be, you know, it's just, it's things kind of taboo that you just don't talk about. It's, it's, that's not supposed to happen. Why did it happen? So, so it was very difficult. Yeah. I, I, I wrestled with it for a long time and, you know, for a lot of reasons, I, you know, obviously I'll, I'm, I'm in my early fifties now. And I think maybe I've just kind of got to a point in my life, for lack of a better way to put it, I don't care as much about what people think. It it happens. I was going to say, that happens with age, so. Yeah, it's like, take it or leave it. People closest to me uh, have probably heard fragments of this story, but at no point in time except to my wife has anyone probably heard all the details at one time uh, that I plan on sharing with you guys tonight. And hopefully I don't bore you. Because uh, that's the that's the flip side. It's like to me, I've lived with this. Well, this occurred like when I was twenty three, and um, I'm I'm encroaching fifty three. So I mean, there's there's a lot of years. So so to me, 
it, it's kind of old news now. I've I've come to grip with it. I've dealt with it. I don't still totally understand it all. Uh, but with you and and with my own research, but you reading, you know, a lot of this, it's I can check the boxes, so to speak, on a lot of this. So there was a point in my life where I was like, did it did it really happen? And that came from and I'm not going to get into hospitals and, and all the details, but there was a cover up with with my near death experience. I'm going to tell you that does not surprise me <laughs> when my wife had our first child. She was in labor for like two days, and eventually they decided she had to have a C-section. She didn't dilate in time mm-hmm. the way she should have. Whatever the right phrasing for that would be, I'm not a, you know. Not a doctor. Not a doctor. And when we got the the bill, there was like multiple units of blood listed. Now she had to have surgery. They did have to cut her open. I, I would understand. Stand you know, reason, but, yeah. I, but we were like, that seems like a lot. And they're like, well, okay, here's the deal. We may have nicked like an may. important artery and there may have been a lot more blood loss than there should have been. And I'm like, holy crap. Like, do you not tell people this? Yeah, now you're telling me just because you want money for it? And and I guess the issue is, is like, if they make a mistake and you don't catch it, yeah, they're not going to tell you. Nope. So. Plausible denial. I mean, un- unless there's a reason to. Now, my brother had a, a friend who had to have surgery. I want to say heart surgery, but I might be wrong. But in the process, you know, when you're under, you can't respond to stimuli. You can't tell them something yep. doesn't seem wrong. Right. They you cut off. literally put your faith, uh, your body and yep. health and well-being in the faith of their hands. Well, they cut off blood supply to his, his brain for longer than your brain should be without blood. And he actually suffered permanent damage. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, the guy was able to function in society, obviously. But, you know, he was a very articulate young man. When I when I had met him, and then I didn't even realize this had happened until after I'd run into him again, and I was like, "What happened to, to your friend?" And so my brother explained the story. It was, I mean, it, it's it's kind of sad, but it, it's sad. Things happen in a hospital that they're not going to tell you about unless they have to. So there was a little bit of that. So I had the whole kind of, I guess we'll call it the taboo uh, aspect, and then the cover up, and then questioning: Did it really happen? Why did it happen? Why did it happen to me? Uh, but tonight, bear with me if you would. I I think. I would like to share the whole story and and kind of lead up to some of the pre-story that could have put my mind in this aspect. Well, first off, born right here in rural Lebanon, Missouri. Uh, this was 1990s. My wife and I had just recently got married. I don't I don't think we'd been married a year. Uh, I went over to my mom and dad's uh, farm, uh, which is about 15-ish plus or minus uh, miles outside of town. And I was working on cutting out my new bride, a Christmas village, little buildings, little houses out of uh, four befores, two befores. And I'm very artsy crafty and, and my wife did flower arrangements. And, you know, so I thought this would be kind of a cool, cool thing to do. Uh, now, I, I, I will say I signed up in shop class and junior high. And I mean, I knew to remove my watch, my rings. I, I was doing everything I was supposed to have done. I even had a push stick that I was pushing the boards through and um i might also add at this point i'm not going to get super graphic but <laughs> there's some stuff in here that if you're a little weak at the stomach yeah. you know, pre precaution i was pushing a board through i cut it cut it successfully and um i hadn't pulled dad's table saw away from the wall is probably the only thing i didn't do properly 
And so what had happened was I had a, a block of uh, two by four that was say 10, 12 inches. And the end of it, after I'd cut it, was up against the wall. So it couldn't freely fall off in the floor. I then reached over with my left hand to get that two before that had been cut. And when I did, I guess it twisted just enough that it bound in the blade and the board shot back reverse, like towards my chest. And in doing that, it rolled my hand underneath that board. Uh, I entirely severed my left pinky. I cut a big portion of my next finger off. The middle finger I can only describe as being filleted from the middle joint all along the bone through the fingernail, and that portion was like my finger was twice as long as it should be filleted off, but still attached right there at the tip of the finger. I was 22, I believe the best I I can kind of put together all the pieces with it being around Christmas, cutting out the Christmas village and all this. This would result in a total of seven surgeries on my left hand over the next several years. Uh, my, my new bride, wife, Sarah, and I had only been married, like I said, less than a year. And, um, I found myself standing there in the garage, concrete floor, metal building, pile of sawdust. And I had no idea what happened. I I have to assume that like most injuries at first, you don't know what you've done. I guess immediate shock is the best, what I've read and trying to relate and piece together. I, I had no pain, the zero pain. And I remember oddly looking down at the pile of sawdust because I'd cut several boards successfully and there was something laying in the sawdust. And I'm like, what, what is that? And it was my pinky. And then like right out of one of the horror movies, uh, my eyes kind of go up to the table saw still running. And I noticed there was this black red substance running down the wall. And again, I was just so disconnected None of this is, it's not making sense. You know, it's not processing. And I'm like, what is the roof leaking? What, what is going on? And then I realized that like right out of the horror show, I, you know, I looked down at my hand and blood was just like every heartbeat just all over the wall. Wow. Um, I have always been known, anybody that knows me, uh, I normally have a big mug, similar to what Bill has here on the table. I've, I've always been a, a, a heavy drinker, whether it be soda or water yeah, or whatever. I was going to say, make sure you phrase yeah, that right. Not, all, not alcoholic <laughs> folks, not especially at that, you know, that time frame. but I always have ice. I'm always one of those that's sipping on something. And for whatever reason, I thought, wow, I'm not sure what's going on here, but this, this isn't good. So I reached down in the pile of sawdust. I, I picked up my severed pinky and I'm looking at my hand and still just trying to process everything. And I took the lid off of my cup and I plunged my hand down into that ice water. And for whatever reason, I threw the pinky in there. Doctors later told me that's the only thing that saved my limbs. And let me just tell you, I wasn't logically thinking. So that wasn't like, hey, I read if you ever severed a limb, this is what you should do. No, it was sheer accident. What whatever you want to call it. Well, I'm gonna say, I mean that I that's sheer luck that guardian angel. Yeah, absolutely. What, what you're supposed to do. Yeah. So then, again, keep in mind, I'm 22 years old, newly married. I'm like, Dad is going to kill me. I have look at the wall. I've left this mess. I was like, I got to turn the table saw off. So here I am holding this mug. I got my hand crammed down in it. I'm bleeding all over the place. I turn the table saw off. I actually think and look at a broom and a dustpan propped up in the corner. <laughs> and again, I'm not thinking properly, folks. So I'm like, I 
should I clean up that sawdust? Is dad going to be mad? You know? And then I'm like, nope, I don't think that's the best decision. So guardian angels like, you know, slapping me on the butt. You need, you need to go get help. So I walk out. And again, this is a very rural area. At the time, my grandmother on my mom's side, her mom uh, lived in a trailer just up on the hill. I guess I had enough logical thinking. My first thought was I'll go to her for help. But then there was that logic aspect. At least I call it logic. I don't want to cause her to have a heart attack. I don't, you know, I don't want to make this bad thing worse. And surely goodness, I mean, imagine you go up and knock on your grandma's door yeah. and it's pushing 70s or whatever. Yeah. So I decided for whatever reason that, um, you know, I'm a country boy. I'm tough and rough and I can, I can make this. So I literally crawl into my truck. And again, I got to state this, you know, I'm real Missouri. I've got a jacked up four wheel drive, Dodge truck, roll bars, brush guard, uh, running boards on the side that you got to step up on in to get in said truck. Well, let me say at this point, the Eric I know now, that's not I me. I would not associate that's that with you in any me. way. Yeah. No. And I had like gun rack in the back and I mean, okay, full who, blown. Who am I to say back in high school, I used to wear, you know, cowboy boots and the hat and the whole nine yards. <laughs> so I I'm sure you would say the same of me. So, and I'm thinking, okay, well, I've got the approximate 15 mile trip. How hard can it be? You know, I assume you're losing a lot of blood at this I point. I am losing a lot of blood. The cup is overflowing, but again, it's not registering. I'm, I'm skipping. I'm, I'm like a record skipping. It's not making all sense, but I back this, you know, jacked up four wheel drive pickup out. I'm sure I'm spinning gravel and start down the long driveway. And I, I'm starting to process. It's like, okay, what do I need to do? Okay, I'm going to put the cup between my legs and uh, hands still down in the cup. And again, I'm thinking as a, I'm not a teenager, but that thought's because, you know, I had the Pioneer stereo system in this truck. I had crushed velvet seats. And I'm like, this is going to stain my seats. <laughs> I'm never going to get this out. And again, just weird thinking. And that's why I want to share all this with you because it, it's, you can't make this crap up. So I start down the road and I am speeding is well, yeah. a very safe assumption to say to the point where i register that you know i almost didn't make that corner gravel roads sliding so it's like i need to be careful i need to slow down i finally make it into town come over the overpass actually where the new hospital is built to an area there and lo and behold i see a local cop coming my direction as i'm driving and i kind of chuckled to myself and it's like buddy if you want to turn your lights on, you're going to follow me all the way to the hospital because I ain't pulling over. And yes, I'm doing at this point, probably 55 and a 30, maybe. Yeah. He didn't even hit his brake lights. He just, I, I don't know. He had other things to do, I guess. <laughs> so I proceeded down to uh, Breach Hospital, which is real close to where Bill and I actually live in that vicinity. It's now been torn down when they built the new hospital. And Again, I'm not thinking properly, so I'm like, there's this nice drive-through that you pull up right next to the ER door. <laughs> no, I don't use that. Somebody might be having an emergency. I don't want to park my truck there. So I go in the parking lot. Well, <laughs> okay, here we go. Uh, as men, and, and this will be sexist, and I'm okay with that because I'm degrading men. I think we have a, a tendency to downplay medical emergencies. I Definitely, yeah. Because I remember at work, you know, we, we talk about reportable and record. I, I was a recordable incident at once, which is the worst kind of accident you can have. Mm -hmm. And I cut my finger to the bone. 
And I remember, much like you're, you're saying, I, I, I cut my finger and I pulled my hand back and I made a fist as tight as I could. And I looked at the young lady working next to me and I said, I'm going to get you some help real quick. And then I have to go to first aid. Right. But my first thought was. I've got to get you help before I leave. get her some help before I walk off. Ugh, me, man. Yeah. And then I go up to my boss and I'm like, hey, I need to go to first aid. And he's like, why? I said, well, I cut my finger. Said, well, how bad is it? And I open my hand. And he's like, oh, my God. That sounds familiar. So. Yeah. I yeah. mean, not not as bad as yours, obviously, but you just you downplay Absolutely. that kind of thing. Absolutely. So, again, I find a, a spot to park, and it's not the closest parking spot even, <laughs> but I, I park the truck, of course, you know, shut it off. I lock the truck. There's enough of that. I, I don't even know if Logic's at, at play here, but there was enough of that. To, I need to lock my truck. I got the Pioneer stereo system and stuff in there, you know? <laughs> And I walk up to the ER, and of course it's the automated doors. And kind of the, the story point you were com- you were telling me, this young nurse, and I'd say literally she was fresh out of college. You know, she's like, "Oh, hi. You know, what can I do for you today?" And I'm at this point, I'm I'm sure I have blood on my clothes, but I think yeah. the cup had contained most of it. And very similar, I've cut my hand. Oh, honey, it can't be that bad. Was literally the words she said. And at this point, I'm. I mean, I'm dizzy. I'm lightheaded. I I had guardian angels helping me. I don't know how I made it to town. And so I'm just like, you know what? (laughs) And I pull my hand out. There is an an older woman, nurse. So they probably needed the ER for that nurse. She has a wheelchair. And she comes out magically with dexterity and speed I've never witnessed before. She catches the other nurse who is in the process of literally fainting, sets her yeah. in a chair, scoops me up in this wheelchair, and it, I'm thinking, finally, here's somebody who freaking understands, you know? And uh, again, there's this weird logic. It's like, oh, thank you. I mean, I'm, I'm still <laughs> trying to be kind. It's like, I, I do have insurance. Do I need to fill out paperwork? <laughs> and she's like, honey, we'll get to that yeah, later. We'll you take know? care of that we're, later. We're going to get you back here, and we're going to get you taken care of. So... I'm here by myself. Uh, my wife is at the carpet store owned by her family, probably within six blocks of the hospital, but nobody knows any of this. So again, I'm starting to process this now. Dad's going to kill me. I've made a mess in the garage. What am I going to tell my wife? How am I going to explain? Mom's going to freak out. You know, all this just kind of, and I'm sitting back here in the emergency room and several doctors come back and you can tell in rural Missouri, this is not normal this is not something even the doctors one poor doctor i bet he wrapped my hand three times and unwrapped it he literally got a manual down off the bookshelf and was like flipping through it and i'm like i'm not feeling in the best of hands right now and i i think it was because of this the shock and the loss of blood but my anger level starts to dramatically dial up i'm I begin to get a little belligerent, and I tell that particular doctor, you know what, if you don't know what to do, get somebody in here that does. And this same nurse is trying to calm me down, (laughs) and she does a great job because it's like, okay, well, this lady has at least helped me. And I tell her, I said, you need to notify my wife at least what's going on. Because at this point, it's like, I don't think I'm going to die of the cut. I'm going to die of people just not knowing (laughs) what what the heck to do. So they they do get a hold of my wife. Uh, they say it's better if I don't talk to her. Well, yeah, probably a good hindsight. But they tell her I've cut my finger. And they leave it at that. And they leave it at that. Wow. So she comes down somewhere in the midst of these multiple doctors coming in. 
And at this point, I, I don't have my mug, my hands wrapped up literally the size of a basketball with gauze, and they're changing bandages because the blood is still coming out. They can't get the blood to stop. I am starting to feel pain. At this point, without exaggeration, probably an hour has passed from the time of the accident to where my wife comes in. And you're coming out of the shock. You said you're starting to feel the pain. Yeah. And so I'm like, can you give me anything? And they're telling me, you have been in shock to a point of so long that we cannot give you pain medicine because you may not come out of it. Wow. I didn't even know that was a thing. Not what I wanted to hear doesn't help with the whole anger management thing. <laughs> but here comes my lovely bride walking in. And, and you can tell, I mean, she's got that concerned look. And she comes in and she goes, what did you do? And I'm like, well, it's hard to explain. I don't even really know. Because, again, at this point, did I see what I thought I saw? Now I'm wrapped up. I can't you know, look at my hand. Yeah. I think I know what I saw, but I didn't really want to look at it. And she's like, well, they just told me that you cut your hand. You're going to get like some stitches and we'll, you know, come home and that'll be it. And it's like, no, 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 no. I, I think it's going to be much worse. This continues throughout the day. My mom and dad are up at the lake fishing with um, my uncle and aunt. And they get a call from, I think, my wife, my mother-in-law. And they're like, you need to get back. There's been an accident. Uh, Eric has cut off a arm. So it went Whoa. from one degree to the other <laughs> so they rush down and you know my wife is like oh well you'll be coming home in a couple hours this will be fine a few stitches and i'm like no no you don't yeah. understand to enter mom and dad and they're like oh my gosh they told me you cut off your arm you don't look that bad <laughs> and i'm just like ah well i so, mean if you gotta hope for the right like you gotta hope you would rather come in and be pleasantly surprised i guess i guess i <laughs> guess but you know again i'm i'm losing it the pain at this point in time is is getting tremendous it's going to be unbearable at that point and maybe this is why i do have such a a pain tolerance today i mean seriously i've done some really stupid (laughs) shit pardon my french and and yeah i just keep going but uh long story short we'll fast forward i set out in the ambulance bay with sarah and um again we're a very rural town uh at that time i think we had two ambulances i'm sitting out there they're trying to get me they've decided they were going to fly me lifeline in a helicopter to one location they decided we didn't have time for that was the words that was used Two, we're going to take him to springfield there's a surgeon that uh, specializes in plastic surgery but limb reattachment he's new to the area we're going to take you there it went from this time we don't have time to fly him to i wait out in the garage for probably another hour because there might be another emergency that the ambulance could be used for at this point, again, I'm, yeah, I'm just like, what effing more <laughs> of an emergency could there be? Get me out of here. And they finally get me to Springfield. The doctor has given up on me that they had called in. Uh, at this point in time, I say called in. He was probably getting ready to go home. It was probably five, six o'clock now. Easily three plus hours have passed. I get to the hospital. I'm like, finally, I've made it. And they're like, well, the doctor you were you were supposed to be here like an hour ago so they thought maybe they went ahead and lifelined you and so he went home he's having supper with his family and we'll see if we can get a hold of him and i'm like whoa what wait so they call him in and uh, they call it getting hold of him he comes back in and very nice gentleman i never will forget him his name is uh, dr arlen winsky 
plastic surgeon specialist, but did do reattachments. And uh, he comes back and he's he's got a very good bedside manner, but he tells me you know some pretty grim news. He's like you know it's been so long, the chances to graft back your pinky in particular is very narrow. It, it's you know the 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 flesh and muscle yeah. and nerves are are most likely dying. And then I tell him. Well, I guess I did do something right. I, I put him on ice. Nobody had told him this. He's like, oh, what? I'm like, yeah, as soon as it happened, I had a mug and I just stuck my hand and, you know, that. And he's like, I'll be right back. So he leaves. He comes back and he's like, they, they brought the limbs and they're still on ice. And I'm like, okay, this is a good thing, right? And he goes, well, I don't want to get your hopes up. Uh, this one, this is not going to be a quick one surgery fix anything he says you're, you're going to have nerve damage you're going to have a lot of this this is going to result in multiple surgeries he said the easiest thing would be just to i would say amputate but leave the pinky amputated and then i can try to focus on the other two fingers and my thumb which i hadn't mentioned i'd also split my thumb down the center which i still have a scar for of course you're stubborn you want all your fingers I, i'm to that point it's like doc <laughs> i'm you know 22 23 years old over my dead body, are you not going to attach this limb? I want you to do everything in your power. And he's like, again, I don't want to get your hopes up. I'm on board. We're going we're to try this. So I, I do the first surgery. Actually, because I have went in shock and trauma for so long, they don't give me anything for yeah. the pain. At this point, I will say, I don't know if my body is just is like, okay, I'm tired of sending the signals, but it didn't hurt as bad. That's crazy. I, I don't know what was going on there. So they did the surgery. A few hours later, they said, we can keep you in the hospital, but as long as you just you know keep it dry, keep it elevated, we need to give it some time, You know, come back in a few days, and you might as well go at home and try to be as comfortable as you can. The doctor then tells my wife and my mom something he purposely neglected to tell me. When you amputate a limb and they reattach it, all those nerves bring a whole new level of pain that I have never, ever, ever experienced in my life. Now, okay, so is this an instant sensation or is this something that happens as it comes back, this I guess? This is like as the nerves are trying to heal and okay. grow over the next days. He prescribed me some medicine, and I used to know the name of it, but it doesn't come to me now, but it was like, you're going to have a hard time finding this medicine. The Springfield Pharmacy didn't even have it. They were out of it. So my, I think it was my dad and maybe my uncle ended up driving to the lake or Jeff City was the closest pharmacy that had this level of pain medicine. Now, they give me some to go home, but I'm talking about over the next few days, you need to take this prescription. Highly regulated, I mean, I guess top tier yeah. stuff. And so my mom and, and my wife, understood this and for whatever reason they decided not to share this with me so i'm going home thinking i'm just so tired i'm so drained I, i've i've got to get rest so they, they i try to go to bed and sleep and i the pain is so intense bill that my body is convulsing it is shaking and at one point later i don't remember a lot of this but mom i guess was on one side of the bed and my wife, Sarah, was on the other side, and like I would vibrate to one side, and they would like kind of bump me back into the bed, and I would like vibrate to the other. It was just kind of like this weird wow. sadistic game to keep me from falling out of bed. 
And the the pills that he prescribed me, let me tell you, I, I needed a triple shot that didn't touch it. Uh, I wouldn't wish that on the worst of my enemies. Finally made it through the night, followed up with the doctor. He told me that he thought we could get all this remedied in three surgeries. We'll fast forward and say that that was not the case. He had to go in and take a tendon out of my arm and later one out of my leg to try to reattach, in particularly the pinky. I had severed the pinky in the joint, so I knew I would have very limited, if any, movement. There was really nothing they could do for that. And at one point, we went through two surgeries, reattached the limb or the uh, tendon inside, and I go for a follow-up, and he's like, okay, I need you to pull that pinky back, and it wouldn't work. It wouldn't move. And I'm like, what's up? It, Doc, come on. You know, you, I went through two surgeries and you're like, this, this should fix it. And he goes, well, with the scar tissue, scar tissue is weird and it sometimes grafts to the tendon. And it's almost like you should have a tendon through a straw that doesn't yeah. touch and it kind of glides naturally. And he says, we got to break that scar tissue. So he says, now I need you to use every ounce of strength you have and pull, make that fist, do whatever you uh, can. Sounds awful. And I'm like, ugh me, man, we got this. So I pull back and I make a fist. And it was, my wife heard it. She said, it sounded like a 22 going oh. off and it snapped. The weird, creepy part was I could feel this tendon almost like a worm ugh. retracting from my oh. pinky back into my wrist. Again, excruciating pain, and then it was over. Just, you know, boom, it was over. And he goes, okay, back to square one. So they had to go in and take another tendon out. That's what leads us to the third surgery, which involved my near-death experience. So I kind of wanted to give a background. Yeah. Hopefully I didn't bore everybody, but well, I mean, we all need of this stuff, nothing seemed to work. Nothing was going right. It, it, it wasn't textbook. At this point in time, I'd had two surgeries. I kind of knew what to expect. They never put me out. Uh, it was a, a local block, which is, uh, in this point, an injection they did under my left armpit. Stretched up a little towel kind of sheet. I was awake during the whole thing. And, you know, I could see the doctors and stuff working on the other side of the sheet over here, or the towel. And we carried on entire conversations. I mean, and music playing in the background. And, you yeah, know. like when my wife had her C-section, they just do the sheet and they just, you know, numb you from there down. Yeah. I could talk to her the whole time. I, I was probably more uncomfortable than she was, to be honest. Right. So. Well, I hate to say I, I was a veteran at this point, but I, I knew what to expect. And here I go in for this third surgery. And, of course, it's, it's not uncommon to have different nurses and, and, and stuff. But this uh, very young man came in, the anesthesiologist, which you, you had spoke about. Yeah. And anesthesiology seems to be a, a common key. And he, he comes in and he's got what I felt was a good bedside manner and you know, he introduces himself and I honestly I don't even remember his name but he said we're going to do something a little different and first off I'm like why and he goes well I recently graduated and you know blah 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 and we got new technology and you know and he pulls out this needle bill and I I am not exaggerating the thing was six inches long and I mean it looks like something Igor out of the Frankenstein movie would have and he's like, now what we're going to do, and at this point, they're strapping me down to the bed. My ankles are strapped. My legs are strapped. There's a belt around my waist. My wrists are strapped. There is a belt across my chest. And he is applying this 
kind of strap where he turns my head to the right and holds it and straps my head down. I'm not liking this. It seems like overkill. And he goes, what we're going to do, as he's literally got the needle and, you know, and he's like, we're going to inject you through the side of your neck. And I was later told this would be similar to an epidural that a, a, a woman would get while giving yeah. birth and said, you know, we believe this is a better way to go. I believe this is a better way to go and you won't feel any pain before I could even stammer to argue and say, well, I haven't felt any pain during the surgeries before it's, it's underway. I mean, I'm at a, I, I, I put my life in the hands of these people and I mean, I'm strapped down. I can't move. And I feel the best way I have been able to describe it to come with words is like being dipped into a warm pool feet first. And I felt like this immersion was coming up over my feet. I felt it come up over my knees, over my legs. And then it kind of got to my chest point. And I remember struggling, kind of labored breathing. And then when it kind of got past that, I remember hearing that beep. And I remember two particular nurses yelling, we're losing him, we're losing him. And I'm sure that period of time was mere seconds. I'm watching the nurses, they're running around, they're, they're trying, they're doing stuff. I can't, I don't know what they're doing, you know, but and my head's tilted, strapped in, you know, I, I don't have a very good view of anything. And then I'm out of body. I have absolutely no fear. I am at the utmost tranquil, peaceful state I have ever experienced. So do you see what's going on? Are you witnessing? It takes a few seconds. And I find myself, and I, this is the part I don't know if, I, I found myself looking in through doors with like those round windows, but I don't know if those doors truly existed, but I know what I saw and yeah. I was looking through those doors and I saw myself lying on the table, on the operating table. I saw four or five people frantically moving around my body. Again, I couldn't really tell what they were doing. And, and this may sound weird, but I didn't care. I was just at this tranquil state. I almost felt like a, a small child on an adventure. This was something I'd never experienced. And I had no fear. So I was like just taking it in. It was just wow. And I, I did continue to look through the window and I watched for what seemed like a minute or so. And they just continued to run around frantically. I, I couldn't tell again what they were doing or, or whatever. And then I felt a presence. Now, a lot of people will say, did you see a light or, you know, a tunnel? I didn't see a, a tunnel. The entire area was illuminated with light. Very white, peaceful, calming light. I wasn't cold. It wasn't hot. It was, it was just perfect. And I felt a tap actually would end up being three taps on my shoulder. And no, I don't believe that was God. I have no doubt in my mind. It was my grandfather. Uh, I affectionately called him Poppy. Um, he was my mother's father. And I had him in my life until I was seven when he passed away uh, due to lung cancer. 
we always got along great. We played frisbee. We got out and walked around the farm. I was I had a very very close bond with my my grandpa Cook or, or Poppy. People said, "Well, did you see him? Did you turn and look?" No, because I had no doubt in my mind that's who it was. I I didn't need to waste the time to look. Yeah. It was just it was weird. But there was like these gentle three taps on my shoulder, and then. Again, I wasn't fearful at all, but I was like, okay, now I'm here with my grandpa, which I felt very comfortable with. So at this point, I I don't know if there was enough logic and thinking that I wanted to stay in this life, if you will, but I did, and you mentioned in your readings, you know, you would often see your body and you felt that you had kind of like, you know, shredded it or whatever. I, I was kind of to that state. It was like, and the weird part was none of our children were born at this time, of course. It was just me and my wife and obviously my direct family. There was a, a side of me that I still feel guilty today. And, and this is a part I struggled to tell Sarah about because I didn't worry about leaving her behind. And I felt, I felt that was wrong. I felt that I should be concerned. You that, know, That's after the fact, like in the yes. moment. Yes, this is way after the fact. But again, struggling dealing with this story through the years and like i said i i have never shared this much of the story at one time with with any one person except for sarah but it was probably eight or ten years before i even told her this portion because there was a part of remorse and guilt after the fact that like wow you know you didn't even care about your wife you were going to leave you know and again children weren't on on the playing field yet so i didn't have to hold myself accountable for that but i kind of beat myself up over that and then after that third tap on my shoulder no words were spoken it was almost like just telepathic which is a word that you used my grandpa was like telling me you know this is where i belong him you this is not where you belong yet. You know, you're, you're not ready for this. We're not ready. You're fine to go back. The doors did not physically open. I passed through them, for lack of a better way of explaining it. I was floating. I wasn't walking. I didn't have any restrictions. There, were, I didn't have to walk. I didn't have to take a step. I just thought myself, and I, I remember moving towards my body, and that was the first time that I saw myself on the operating table. And that was a little creepy. The first time, I think because I was leaving that life, if you will, going back, and it was like, I'm coming to realization, I'm going to take this jump. I don't know what's going to happen. And it was a little scary, a little spooky, but it was over, just boom. And the next thing I know, I wake up, I have no idea where I'm at, totally confused way over medicated and i'm staring at something that i feel like i've i've been staring at for probably 30 minutes and i'm trying to figure it out and it this is kind of funny because it's like i'm thinking it's a mountain i'm thinking it's snow uh an iceberg maybe and i'm just like what am i looking at it was textured white wallpaper and i was in the recovery room now these surgeries beforehand literally were 20 to 30 minutes. This surgery had lasted four hours. So on the other side, later told to me by my parents and Sarah was, 
they knew something was up. You know, yeah. they kept going up to the nurse's station, you know, and they kept asking, you know, what's what's taking so long? You know, it's normally 30 minutes. Well, the doctor was late or there was the, there was cheap excuses. And, you know, that worked for the first hour and a half, two hours. Now it's four hours. Well, he's he's in the recovery room now. And they're like, why did it take four hours? I mean, yeah, lips were zipped. There was there was no talk about it. And I truly do believe those nurses didn't know. They just, there was a few people who knew and they just didn't tell anybody. And yeah. they were just trying to handle the situation. As you and I have been managers, we don't always know what's going on either. And people yeah. are asking us and we just, we try to make them feel comfortable and, and try to get through whatever's going on. I finally start to come out of being out of it and I am like paralyzed. I, it's all I can do to partially roll over in bed. And I remember my arm like falling across and the weight of it kind of helps turn me in bed. And there was a nurse that was sitting there in the recovery room next to me and she's all happy and chipper. And she's like, Oh, there he is, you know, kind of deal. And my speech is slurred. My tongue is numb. I mean, every part I'm like paralyzed. And she's like, well, you know, uh, I was told that, you know, you, you might have, might take a little bit longer. Let's take it easy. You know, let me help me prop you up and all this. Well, then another nurse comes by and she gets them to help because I'm a pretty good sized guy, you know. So they prop me up in bed. And I guess at this point, my my wife, and if anybody knows my wife, she's she's can be resentless. Uh, she had made a point that she was going to come back into the recovery room. So quickly, she comes in and, and of course, I don't mean this to sound bad, but it's just like blah, 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 blah. And I'm not comprehending. There's every bit of fragments that's like, why is it took so long? What's wrong with you? What's happening? And I'm like, I, I, I'm yeah. slurred speech. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm trying to communicate. That anger level that I had experienced when it all happened is all coming back to me. It's all building. And I'm thinking back, here's yet another example. Nothing, not that anything can go right from an accident, but like, man, throw me. Th give me a break here somewhere and the nurses all of a sudden are like okay well we're going to leave you guys alone you can talk a little bit and uh, we're just going to go check on some of the other ones uh, you probably should get up and try to go to the bathroom maybe walk around a little bit when you're ready okay and so at this point i i am struggling trying to get words out and you know, Sarah scoots a little closer to me and she's trying to talk. She's trying to figure it out. And she's telling me that the nurses aren't telling them anything. And finally, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 minutes pass. The nurse comes back. It's like, okay, doctor says you need to get up. You need to go to the restroom. You need to start moving around. And I'm thinking, I am not ready for this. I, I don't, my legs are jello. I don't, yeah. you know, and the weird part is, again, I don't, think even those nurses knew what was going on because they're like well your wife can help you i mean they didn't even help me they, they helped me get out of bed and i'm standing at, at best if you want to use the word standing and i'm leaning on sarah and they're like yeah bathroom's just right out that door just two doors down blah 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 somehow i made it to this day i i don't know if i peed in the corner or the sink or the toilet or whatever but i i did my business i i came out and I remember trying to tell Sarah, you know, something ain't right. I just, I just don't feel right. We get back to the room, prop him up in bed, 
and the world is spinning. The nurses leave. I fall out of bed. I just totally collapse. I crack my skull on one of those rolling tables, the bedside tables. Oh, it gets worse. I hit it so hard, I shoot it across the room where Sarah is sitting in a chair. She looks up, and the corner of the table hits her nose and bloodies it. Oh. I fall to the floor. Uh, Obviously, we made some commotion. Sarah's screaming. I'm doing gurgling noises, whatever. The nurses come in, and I guess I went full sailor mode. I got belligerent as all get out. And I'm telling these nurses, get the blankety blank away from me. You're not helping me, you know, help her, you know. They try to get me back up into bed. I am kicking, screaming, fighting. I don't know what's going on, but I ain't liking it. And I know it's not, it's not right. It's not, it's not the way it's supposed to be. They end up sending me home about an hour later. They have to take me in a wheelchair and literally I crawl into the car. I still can't walk. I can stand at this point as the drugs are starting to wear off. We'll fast forward. I have a fourth surgery, a fifth surgery. And I, again, I, I'm reluctant to talk about this. I, I, I don't know what I experienced, but for whatever reason, I had a well enough relationship with Dr. Winsky that one day, you know, Sarah and I went up for a follow-up and she goes, why don't you just ask him? And I said, well, I'm not sure he even knows. And she goes, well, I think we can trust him. And I think, I think he would, he would look into it. And so I decided to, that was the first time besides to my wife that I've shared any of that. On those later surgeries, did they do like the localized? They went or? back to doing the block and the armpits. Okay. Uh, yeah, kind of weird, huh? Uh, yeah, back to the same normal. And uh, needless to say, the fourth surgery, I was absolutely terrified through the roof because, I mean, I, I went in asking questions. It's like, I, I want the block. I don't want this other thing. And they're all looking at me kind of weird. Well, of course, you're going to get a block. That's what we normally do. And again, so then I'm questioning my sanity. Did it even happen? I mean, again, at this point, I'm not sure I shared anything with mom and dad, probably for a year or so. Sarah, I had shared a little bit, and she kind of coerced me, you know, let's talk with the doctor. I mentioned it to him, and he raises his eyebrow, and he does immediately say, he goes, well, I know when I come in for the surgery, you were still strapped to a bed. And I thought that was odd, because when they give you the block, they they don't do that. At most, maybe your arm. And, you know, he goes... Now that you mention it, there was a lot of that, that that doesn't add up, but I'm sure there was logical explanations for all of it. And I said, well, maybe there is. Look into it if you would. And I'm thinking I'll never hear another thing from him. Because, again, this gentleman works for this hospital. As I've learned over the years from my brother-in-law being a doctor, doctors don't necessarily work for, for a hospital. hospital. A lot of times it's a contractual thing, which I didn't I didn't know that. but like they Good don't, point. I mean, he, he might not have any particular ties to, like, you know, saving their good name, as, as it were. Well, funny the way it worked out. He, uh, he was actually an older doctor, and he had moved to Springfield to retire. The next follow-up visit I had, it was different. You know, the nurse was dismissed out of the office, and he came in just with Sarah and myself and him. Of course, door closed. Pulls his little stool over, sitting down on it, gets real close, and he says, um, I've been doing a little investigation work. We had a new anesthesiologist. That is the first check mark I have for my sanity. Yeah. I remember remember that. that. I remember him talking to me. And I'm like, yeah, 
And he goes, and apparently he give you the equivalent of an epidural. And that was the first time I'd heard that. And I said, is that like where they would like go down with a needle in your neck? And he goes, well, yeah, it could work the same way. Usually it's in a different spot, obviously, for a woman. But yeah. yeah. And so we kind of talked a little bit, not a lot, pretty, pretty vague, pretty short. Not much was said after that. But he give me the acknowledgement. And I'm like, okay, I'm not dreaming this. I'm not, yeah, whatever. I, I'm coming to grasp with this and I'm understanding fragments of it. It made me feel a lot better. I still didn't know why. I still didn't understand all of it that was going on. But it's like, okay, I'm not crazy. Another follow-up visit after one of the last surgeries. And he tells me, kind of similar, dismisses the nurse, comes in and he goes, I'm going to be retiring in the next year. And if you need me to go to court for you, I'm going to tell you there was a total cover-up for the hospital. And at this point, I'm thinking, I'm already getting bills for all of these hospital stuff. And I'm like, you people, not meaning of the doctor, but you people, this hospital are trying to cover this up, sending me bills. I had insurance, but still it was costly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Seven surgeries, you know, and you blankety blank blankers are coming at me for bills and payment when you killed me. I mean, I died on the operator. I don't know how long I was gone. I, that never came out, but he did say he saw enough proof that he definitely believed everything I said. And he said there was absence of documents that really kind of said more by not being there. And at that time, again, I was raised very religious. I did not believe in suing people. Oh, man. And let me just tell you, had that happened in today's age, especially the way they had to come after me for payment, I I would have changed oh, yeah, that story that. a lot. Anyhow, wow, that is the most I've ever talked about my dear near-death experience. And uh, I will say the out-of-body experience was much more tranquil and peaceful than what I went through in the real life. Wow. So there's that. Well, I appreciate you relating that story. So <laughs> Hopefully I didn't I, bore I had everybody. heard bits and pieces, obviously, through the years, but I hadn't heard the whole story put together like that. So, do we want to tackle Mr. Grayson's Why not? series of questions here? We'll rate your near-death experience. See how many points I get. Again, this is a series of 16 questions. There's three potential answers. I don't the know first... if I feel like I'm in school or a job interview. <laughs> The first answer is two points. The second answer is one point. The last answer is zero points. Did time seem to speed up? Everything seemed to be happening all at once. Time seemed to go faster or neither. I'm going to say neither. Okay. Time wasn't even a value. Were your thoughts speeded up? Incredibly fast, faster than usual, or neither? I'm going to say neither. Did scenes from your past come back to you? Past flashed before me out of my control. Remembered many past events or neither? The past events, I would say no, but obviously my grandfather was there, and I did feel well, I think safe. that's covered by a different question. Okay, okay. So, so you'd say, say neither? Yeah. Did you suddenly seem to understand everything about the universe, about myself or others, or neither? Neither. I'm not scoring too high on this. No, not yet. <laughs> did you have a feeling of peace or pleasantness? Incredible peace or pleasantness? Relief or calmness or neither? Absolute tranquility, peace. Did you have a feeling of joy? Incredible joy, happiness, or neither? Mm, that's a tough one. At the time, I would say neither. Did you feel a sense of harmony or unity with the universe? United, one with the world, no longer in conflict with nature or neither? No longer conflict. 
Did you see or feel surrounded by a brilliant light? Light clearly of mystical or otherworldly origin? Unusually bright light or neither? Totally surrounded by bright light. So all aspects. I mean, the floor, the walls, the ceiling. Would you everything. say mystical or otherworldly or just unusually bright? I'm going to say the mystical because, again, I had no fear, total tranquility. Were your senses more vivid than usual? Incredibly more so, more than usual, or neither? I remember that as vividly today as the day it happened. So incredibly, incredibly more so. Incredibly, yes. Did you seem to be aware of things going on elsewhere as if by ESP? Yes, and facts later corroborated. Yes, but facts not yet corroborated or neither. Neither. Did scenes from the future come to you? From the world's future, your personal future, or neither? Neither. Did you feel separated from your physical body? Clearly left the body and existed outside of it. Lost awareness of the body or neither? Totally separated. Did you seem to enter some other unearthly world? Clearly mystical or unearthly realm? Unfamiliar strange place or neither? This one's a tough one because I never turned and looked. My, you know, I was facing that door, but I definitely felt there was something way larger directly behind me. So I'm going to say I felt that mystical world kind of behind me. Or, okay. Did you seem to encounter a mystical being or presence? Definite being or voice clearly of mystical otherworldly origin? Unidentifiable voice or neither? Grand, I mean, my grandpa, I'm not real that sure. That would be the next one. Okay. So, okay. So, say, say neither. Did you see deceased spirits or religious figures? I saw them. I sensed their presence or neither. Yes. Didn't see. Again, I Since had no reason to even turn around and look. I knew it was him. Did you come to a border or point of no return? A barrier I was not permitted to cross or sent back to life involuntarily? A conscious decision to return or neither? That consciousness. I mean, basically him tapping me on the shoulders, telling me not ready. And I, I made that, I so, guess, first gesture to go through the door. 13. Hey, that's my lucky number. 13. 13. You consider average to be 15. So. Well, I'm definitely not average. Um, <laughs> a score of seven or higher is considered a near-death experience, obviously. So you have a, a 13 here. Items one through four are the cognitive component. You scored all of those zero. Uh, items five through eight are the effective component, which you did five there. So it's definitely effective. Nine through 12. Items nine through 12 are the paranormal component you did four there and then numbers 13 through 16 are the transcendental component and you had four there so you have to have at least five in one category so you you definitely had a an effective style near death experience uh, pretty close on the the bottom two supernatural paranormal or paranormal and transcendental i mean so um but you you did score pretty close to average for for most people that have near-death experiences and like I said, a score of seven or higher is definitely what they call a verifiable near-death experience. Uh, a lot of these details you you did tell in your story. I mean, I didn't need to go back. I could have answered some of these right, without right. your help. Kind of an, an interesting exercise here with the, with the questionnaire. Yeah, I didn't even know such existed. I, yeah, I, didn't, I never heard of it until I started looking it up. But I want to say thank you for sharing that. That was, like I said, I'd heard bits and pieces over the years. I had never heard the whole story all at once. And, and you... you I had not really heard a whole lot of the actual experience itself or, or even the events afterward. So it was a long ordeal. I mean, many years technically and coming to grips with it was, was very rough, very rough. Well, hopefully I have not bored you and hopefully, uh, I've given you a few things to think about. I will just say in closing, I was basically, I felt I was, uh, told by my grandfather that, Whatever it is I'm supposed to accomplish in this life, 
maybe I hadn't done it yet. I'm not sure I still have done it, but the, you know, wasn't ready for me yet. So I'd like to think that that door is still there for me when I do get there. But uh, I, I'm hoping by sharing this, I'm sure some will kind of roll their eyes and maybe even ridicule. And I'm okay with that. I'm to a point in my life, I'm totally okay. But I'm hoping if nothing else, maybe some of the people out there who have had similar experiences or know someone who's had similar experiences that this might add a little bit of credibility and maybe they wouldn't have to go through grasping all that I have had to try to do because I, I didn't have that. So I hope that helps. Thanks for listening, y'all. This is just yet another example of what you'll find on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Raven's Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, Lebanon, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for, again, supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, <laughs> using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, and I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.